<laughs> hey guys, um, how are you guys doing by the way? Before you listen to the episode for this week, I would like to invite you to be a part of the 33 Project, which is the education and scholarship fund that I'm putting together to um, help indigent children and families in Nigeria. It's one of my initiatives for this coming new year. I'm going to turn to three in a few days. And I'd like to invite you to be a part of that. I'm hoping to raise um, $3,300. That's $1,000 for every year that I have, you know, that would have been alive. To be a part of that, all you just have to do is donate towards it. And all you want to share the link to um, your friends and your family, share it on your Facebook page and Instagram or wherever. Share it. And um, the more Richie has, the potential it has to reach its goal, which is to reach that $300. So, um, no amount is too small. And um, most of the recipients are going to be from Nigeria anyways. And a dollar goes a long way. It's a long stretch. So, to put it in better context, a dollar is actually like 360 naira. So, with $50, you can actually pay for someone's tuition. And I'm not saying you should put you know, $50 down. Whatever you can put down, $10, $20. Five dollars, hey, I'll take it. I don't discriminate against money. And for those listening in Nigeria, the Paystack link is also up. And I'm going to put it in the show notes. You can also be a part of this. But anyways, I hope you guys um help me to achieve this dream. My dream is to keep raising the money until I hit my target. And I've also identified one of the potential recipients, uh, Miss Chinyere Akujabi from Okokomaiko, Lagos. Um, she was widowed at 30 and she has three kids. And if you listen to her story and also watch her video, you can get better context. And all of this will be posted in the show notes. So let's um, be part of something great through the the three project by the Marcible podcast. Thank you for being um, just amazing. Thanks for your support listening to the show. Don't forget to keep sharing, subscribing, and also um, commenting and sending me your comments, what you think about the show, what you like about it, or things I can potentially improve i love hearing feedback i love just that engagement it's what keeps it going otherwise it seems like i'm just talking to the vacuum and i thank you for those that have reached out to me to let me know how you know a particular episode helped them in navigating whatever issues we're going through and um yeah i think that's it enjoy the show then and thank you so much hello everyone i am mosebo and this is the more civil podcast. Welcome back to the show, everyone. This is the Marcible Podcast, a podcast about culture and cultural nomads designed for blacks and Asians. I'm your host, Marcible, Nigerian born. U.S. educated, Korean speaking, struggling to lecture. I have on the show with me a senior colleague, and um, I'll tell you how we met. But <laughs> she's um, an associate professor with the Department of Pharma School Sciences at the Roseman University of Health Sciences College of Pharmacy. She's also an adjunct fac- faculty with the Department of Pharmacotherapy at the University of Utah. She received a um, bachelor's in pharmacy degree from Manipal University in India, and after working in India for three years. With um, a background in pharmaceutical industry, she moved to the United States for her MBA from the University of Louisiana Monroe, ULM. Later, she received her PhD in pharmaceutical socioeconomics from the University of Iowa. Um, she's a health services researcher and focuses on the psychosocial aspect of chronic disease management. She's also an active member of the International Society of Quality of Life, which is where we met, and also um, International Society of Pharmacoeconomics and Outcomes Research, ASPOR. We haven't met there, but also a member there. She's also a member of the American Pharmacists Association, as I am, and she's also a member of American Association of Colleges of Pharmacists. I'm also a member too. Anyway, everyone, tell me welcome, Dr. Elizabeth, on me to the podcast. Hello, Dr. Hi, Devo. <laughs> and um, for those wondering how I met her, um, at the one of the organizations that we both, you know, have membership in, uh, was the first time going to the conference, and that was last year. And that's the IC Corporate. International Society and Quality of Life. And I looked at the cost of attending the conference, the cost of hotel, the cost of flowers. Oh my goodness, this is really expensive. Looking at $2,000 just to go for a conference. So, um, I did this shamelessly. I, <laughs> I emailed the conference coordinator. Hey, do you guys have people that are looking to, you know, split hotel bills with people? I'm like, oh, we don't have anyone yet. 
why not just go ahead and send an email to one of the seeds, special interest groups? So I did that and she replied me and we stayed together and the rest of the sales industry. Anyways, um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, Dr. Ani, and um, I'm very honored to have you on the podcast. It's my pleasure. So um, tell us a little bit more about yourself, like in a few words. In addition to the scientific and um, laudable accolades that you have. <laughs> well, um, so I'm basically I'm from India. Um, so I was raised in India. I you know, went to school to the University of Iowa. When I finished my MBA, I went to the University of Iowa and got my PhD in pharmaceutical socioeconomics. And once I graduated from there, I came to Utah, and here I work. So it's nine years now. Um, so I started as an assistant professor, and now I'm, I am an associate professor there. And, um, well, in addition to what I work, you know, I, of course, enjoy my work. I love doing research. Um, I enjoy interacting with students. Um, you know, I, I enjoy the academic life, actually. But in addition to all those things that I do, I also... Um, enjoy reading i read a lot um you know like anything that i get my hand on i can read it doesn't matter what it is um i read um you know every kind of things you know something about me that a lot of people may not be knowing is that i dance a lot yeah i dance both um uh, the indian classical ones um yeah i do that but uh you know put music on you see me dancing i love dancing i enjoy <laughs> dancing um that's another thing that i do you know anytime it's like friday i mean not friday saturday morning comes Put the music on and I'm dancing. Uh, so, uh, yep, that's one thing about me that a lot of people don't know. But, uh, um, so you got a pharmacy degree there and then you came to the US for an mm-hmm. MBA. Great, so what happened? What happened between that? Not that I, I don't think pharmacists should get an MBA, but what was your thought process then? Given that you're leaving the US for an MBA, not even like an MPH, like, you know, or even like, um, health economics and outcomes research. Like most people would do in pharmacy. Right. So after I finished my pharmacy in India, I actually started working with sales, actually, pharmaceutical sales. So I was more like a uh, pharmaceutical sales representative, right? So I, I started work, I started my career as a pharmaceutical sales representative. And uh, in a year, I got promoted and I became a district manager. So I was uh, covering uh, the state that I come from. I covered a couple of districts and I actually had six people working with me. So it was a really good experience for me, you know, working on different products, working with different people, encouraging them, motivating them. Because once you become sales manager, then your target basically comes from your team, right? You cannot meet with your doctors and finish your target. You have to meet with your, you have to work with your team and the team has to get the target. Only then I get my target done. So I did that uh, for uh, two years. And at that point of time, I understood that if I had to move up in the career ladder, I need a need an MBA. It was an essential thing at that point of time. So once I started thinking about MBA, a couple of things happened. One was that um, I uh, one of the one of the colleagues who was working with me, he said that well, you know, um, so I was moving up the career ladder pretty fast in India, and uh, he said something to me that just stuck with me. He said that look. You know, you are good, you're smart, but in India, the glass ceiling is pretty low. You're going to hit it pretty fast. So he said, maybe you should think about a different country, uh, something like United States, where, yes, there is a glass ceiling, but there is a bit more higher. So it may take some more time before you hit the ceiling. So it might be a good idea for you to do that. And so that was one thing that is in my mind. And the second thing was that I was actually looking at the cost of doing MBA in India, and it was pretty expensive. And then when I looked around, I was like, okay, if I can come to United States to do my MBA uh, with a full scholarship, then I am actually not spending a lot. <laughs> so when I looked at the pros and cons of it, I was like, well, it may not actually be a bad idea to do my MBA in United States, live here for two years and get experience and see how it is like, right? So that's how I went to the United yeah. States to do my MBA. So it was a different way because I did not come to my graduate program right after my pharmacy i took three and a half years working gaining some experience and that was the sales you know so i think that is where i came to the mba program very good did you have like a transition like a postdoc in between you went straight you went into uh, an assistant professor position. yeah so i went as an assistant professor position directly um so uh, i don't know nine years back when we are all graduating from the PhD program especially with the social administrative sciences um the the fellowship or the post 
presidency was you know what is it called like the postdoc postdoc okay. was not a big uh, necessity especially if you are in the behavioral side uh, maybe on the economic yeah. side it was still a little more necessary but not much on the behavioral side so it was not that hard to find a position uh, but it, today i see that it is changing a little bit um I see the PhD students actually going for a postdoc before getting to the faculty yeah. position. In a way, it helps also because you get the two years to train yourself for a, for your first grant, you know, all those kind of things before you are put on the tenure track. So I think it kind of helps you to um, make that bridge, that gap between your PhD where you are, your hands were, you know, like they really guide you a lot. And when you suddenly as an in academic position, there is no one to guide you. You're on your own. So I think the postdoc kind of helps them, um, you know, to make the transition. But when I came out of the school, there was no, it was not a necessity, and I started working that day. I I'll kind of argue a little bit against that. I do see the merit of being a postdoc, and I I've talked about, you know, even in my position, if I had a postdoc. But at the end of the day, whenever you find yourself, you'll find a way of just staying afloat. You know, um, because with a postdoc, you still have some restrictions. You can't apply for full grants. What you're really basically doing is, you know, um, building yourself up for um, when you get a full position and start applying. It's almost like you're networking onto the road of that. So in lieu of that, if you get a new position as an assistant professor, you can actually negotiate them not starting your tenure track in time. Maybe you do like a protected time because uh, being called a postdoc, where you can, when you have the capacity of being of going in as an assistant professor. Mm-hmm. I think it depends on just your personality type and just how much you're willing to take this. That's what it comes to. I agree to that too. You know, it's a lot of times it is also on your personality how much you're, you're willing to take the risk. I think you correctly said it. But I think some of the departments which is very competitive are trying to see that they yeah. can get a postdoc yeah. in. And, and I, the other thing I'm also seeing that is that it's actually, you know, to some extent it is utilizing your PhD's at a low rate of pain, right? It's not even like the grad yeah. school. Now, these are the, these are the postdocs are the ones who really know the work. Uh, you don't have to train yeah. them in any way and you pay them like half. So it's easy to bring I in know. a post. It's almost like a glorified, a glorified grad school. It is. It like is a glorified all of, grad. all of the work, none of the glory. Right. You know? So I think there is a, there's a trend from some of the departments to bring in a postdoc or somebody by the name of a fellow in to get some of the work done. But I think they're negotiating it enough that they come out with a um uh you know like a k the k grant right something like that then it's good for them but if they come out with nothing in their name not even a co-pi in anything then i think i agree with you that it's a total loss of their time yeah no um for those that are listening and are not aware of this as an assistant professor there are two major tracks you can go into you can go what to call the tenure track um meaning you have a clock where you end up either doing research, well, they call it the Holy Trinity, research, teaching, and then scholarship, um, service and leadership. Or you can go the non-tenure track and you can maybe choose a teaching path or a research path. I think one of the unique things about Dr. Oni is that she has, um, she's not on the traditional track, but she does teaching and research and she does it in such a way that she's found the balance to merge her love for teaching and for research. So can you um tell us more about this, Dr. Annie? First, why didn't you go for the traditional tenure track as you know it? And how have you been able to, you know, set your do your research and also your teaching portfolio in such a way that you're combining the best of those two things right? Right. So um you know, many times when you are graduating and coming out, it's also the time that you're also starting your family. So yeah. it's a balance, yeah. right? So it's it, so once you start on a tenure track, as you rightly said, your your clock starts. And you have to do what you have to do. And so, you know, you're also trying to start a family at the same time. And so it's a big balance. And somebody like like me, who is, uh, you know, a migrated to this country, I don't have a family here to support me, right? So if I have kids, then there is no grand program and there are no uncles, aunts, you know, to take care of them. So it is just me and my husband with the kids. So I wanted a position where it was a little more on the other side, where I was not under pressure with the tenure. 
So I decided to go on a track where, you know, it's more of a teaching, it's a non-tenure track. So there is not, there is no pressure on me to bring in a grant to get my tenure and things like that. So it was a little more easy for me to raise my family. Um, you know, like when my kids get sick, I don't have to worry about a grant deadline. I can stay home, take care of the child and come back. You know, it took my first couple of years a little slow. Um, you know, I was not worried about the, the clock that was ticking. To some extent, I feel like it's really uh, such a disadvantage, especially if you are a woman i think right because you want yeah. both you want to have your family you also want to have your career and you have to you have to yeah. uh you know uh, trade off and i know some of the departments are really good uh they allow you to do a lot of things but there's a limit to what they can do uh and and, and you see your colleagues your friends who graduated with you moving to the big r own schools getting the tenure you see you you are watching it you're seeing all these things But, you know, you always think that this is a decision I took because of these reasons. And, uh, you know, that's fine. And uh, the one thing that I did to myself from the time I joined the Roseman was that I was really motivated. I was like, okay, this is a teaching school. Research is not a huge priority here, but that's not going to stop me from doing research. So I did everything in my capacity to make sure that I publish on a regular basis, which meant I I, uh, made a lot of collaborations. I met a lot of people. you know, I, I'm not shy to ask for collaborations. I'm not shy to ask for help. I am not shy to go and tell them, look, I don't have a funding, but I would like to do this project. Would you like to work with me? And people are usually nice, you know, like I get statisticians working with me. I get, um, you know, pharmacists working with me. Uh, and, and, you know, so I have been doing a lot of research, um, you know, uh, publishing on a regular basis. Um, and, uh, you know, finding resources, utilizing every small thing that is possible. Uh, in addition to my major research, which is, uh, uh, you know, chronic disease management, I also do a lot of education research too, because coming from a teaching school, it's, uh, you know, that is some of the facilities that you can use. And I always felt like the theories that I learned in my SAS can actually be used in the education research. Like patients yeah. are similar to students. <laughs> patients don't take <laughs> medicines. Students don't want to sit in the class. Yeah. <laughs> so what do I do, right? It's the same same thing, yeah. right? Motivation, motivation, yeah. CBS. Exactly. So, so I use my theories interchangeably and I work on a lot of education research too. So it's fun. So it is a little more of, um, um, I would say patience to find my, um, my resources, but I think it's worth, you know, like I had learned a lot. I learned to be patient. All those things happened, uh, because I'm in this, uh, non-traditional track. Very good. I think um, we kind of talked about this, but I want us, I mean, between me and you one-on-one, I want us to actually talk more about that. I think one of the things that I, that when you told me about just how you were able to set up your research, that I think we can highlight is the types of collaborators you have. Now, that I always say there are two kinds of um, medical doctors in the U.S. Those that love research and they see, they see the need for outcomes research, for example, and they are vested in it. And those that are not interested, they don't see the merit in it. And then you have to be the one to start showing them the value. And it seems to me that you tend to work more. You started with like the, the, those in the latter category, like having to, you know, communicate the value of, hey, we can actually use your the setting to um, drive value for whatever. For, for example, working with a urologist or a cardiologist and having them see the importance of having outcomes research done to improve, you know, quality of care and all of that. Now, how are you? How if you like for those that are listening that might be in this show about if they don't know how to like go up to a collaborator that might think they might be interested but they're kind of worried like eh how do I really explain the value of this kind of research that I'm doing like what tips would you give this kind of well you know it's a I think the one thing that we had to make sure that uh, whatever we are telling the clinicians, right, uh, whether it is a physician or a pharmacist, everything has to make sense to them in the clinical way. So if we just show them the outcomes research, it doesn't matter to them. Um, so, for example, I work on medication adherence, and I say that, oh, if you do it like this, it's going to improve the medication adherence. But if I say that, they're only half interested. What they're really interested is that if they start taking their medications as prescribed, 
then the clinical benefits will improve, right? So the HbA1c level will go down, the cholesterol will go down. So I think you have to translate everything to them into whatever outcomes research we are doing, how will that translate into the clinical um, uh, aspect? And you have to show them like kind of like an algorithm. If this is how you do it, this is what's happening. Yeah. If this is how you do it, this is what is going to happen. I think they relate to it like that because they're used to everything like an evidence-based medicine. So in the evidence-based medicine, yeah. it is like if you have an HbA1c level like this, this is how you treat it. If your HbA1c level is like this, this is how you treat it. So I think you have to translate the research also to them like that. And the one thing that I have done is that um, I have showed them the results of my past research, you know, the ones that I have done for my grad school, the ones yeah. where uh, I was able to use some of this debt and still continue my research. I showed them the results from that and said, look, this really will work, right? And once they know what you're talking about, you know uh, you know your research, you know your stuff, and it is, that can be translated into a clinical everyday world, then they become interested in it. But we also have to keep in mind that they don't know a lot of things about research, like IRB. Uh, the status yeah. part, yeah. doing the design part. They can help us a lot with the clinical part of it, but they really don't have a lot of idea about all the other parts, which you have to take on yourself and be patient with them and work with them and so that you get all those things approved. You know, the research design is approved. And there is, of course, roadblocks, right? So you work with someone for three months, six months, you develop something, and then they you go to their boss or the supervisor changes, a new person comes in and he's not interested in it. And now, now it is stuck, right? And uh, you can get frustrated but you just have to figure your way out through that stay with patients you know things and if that has happened to me several times actually where you develop a collaboration you're ready to move on and then um, the, the structure changes the organizational structure changes somebody new comes in the priority changes you know so and then you're like oh well that that is gone and i now have to find another collaborator so that those things happen but that's what i said you had to be really patient and uh, keep your fingers crossed that it will actually happen well very good um, let's dial the clock back a little bit, pun intended. I always say, like, I have to kind of clock, because I have the tender clock chiming behind me, and I also have my biological clock, like, ticking. And I don't know if she's going to kill me <laughs> Not kidding. Um, for women in academia, women as assistant professors, women as associate professors, there's so many things that we have to contend with, because it's, it used to be a very male-dominated field, and the numbers are rising up. But when we attended the AACP conference last year, which is the American Association of Colleges of Pharmacy, and they were reading out all the statistics, like you have a lot of women coming, and then the dropout rates kind of, you know, the attrition rate is very high compared to males, and then the number of females like going up for promotion, like tenure, is also low. And I got thinking to myself, we can't like, we can't like make comparisons without having to like understand, give possible reasons why. So you did mention that, like, women in that, like, women going in as associate professors, you're probably in those times of your life where you want to have kids. And by the time you start taking the leaves and your work kind of goes down a little bit because you're not able to publish or do your research. So that kind of makes you really, you're not going to be at the same stage as the guy that never took, like, fatality, for example. And there's some other factors, you know. And I think one one big thing that I notice is that, is that feeling of never, you feel like you're never enough like imposter syndrome and all that. So for you, haven't had, you know, you, you've had one clock that was really chiming. What kind of suggestions would you give to women in the workplace, especially those in academia? Well, I think it's very personal, right? If everybody has to make a decision as to how they want to do it. So for me, I took the decision that well, I just don't want to do it. It's way too much on me. Um, I have to spend time with my family. My kids need me. Um, and I feel happy when I, you know, I go to the school for every, everything they do, everything they do. Uh, I mean, like last couple of months back, they had a, um, they, so my older daughter, she came and told me that, oh, we're having a Mexican dance party, mommy, you have to come. And I was like, sure. So I go there and trust me, the dance was for less than 10 minutes. It took 20 yeah. minutes to drive up there and 20 minutes to drive back to see <laughs> a seven minutes dance. But, you know, when I walk in there, the smile on her face, right? She's so happy that I'm there. 
um, I volunteer in their classes. I go there and work in their classroom. So all those things make them so happy. And for me, again, being uh, someone not from this country, knowing their school system is very valuable for me. I, I didn't, I was not educated here, right? So I don't know how the school system here works. So for me, going to the school and seeing how the schools works and all those things really makes a lot of sense to me. Now, there are, there might be others who, who are okay with that. You know, for them, it might be like, it's okay. You know, what I need is my career. Especially if you're an American or if you have family here, it may not be a huge deal, actually, right? You may have a cause and all those things to help you out. They may be the ones attending the kids program. They may be the ones volunteering in the class. They are the ones taking them for all the sports and everything, right? So maybe if you have all this kind of support for you, the social support, maybe you can just do it. You know, a lot of women have done that. So you can do that. So I think it is a matter of you figuring out how you want to move ahead, right? So is it your, is it the family that's important for you or is it a career or you think you can make a balance? Uh, once you make the decision, especially with your uh, spouse, with your husband, I think then it's a, it's a good deal actually, you know. But w- the one tip I would say is that whatever decision you make, you, yeah. you think through it completely so that you don't regret it. Because as I said before, you are sitting here and you're watching your colleagues who came out of the program with you or even after you, moving in the tenure track, getting into the tenure, you're sitting and watching. And if you start feeling regret about it, then that's not a good idea. So whatever you're doing, you have to make sure that you have thought through it completely and you're happy with the decision that you're going to take. So that way you remain happy because, you know, and of course, I think after a few years, you can always make a change and you can go back into the tenure system if you want. Uh, That's a choice. That you can do, um, you know, or 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 you can start with their research and then see and you can move down to the teaching, saying that you know what, I don't want to deal with all those things. I want to work with the other one. So that that's the other thing too. Okay, um, a quick one follow up to that. I want to play devil's advocate here a little bit. If you could go back and do something differently as far as this path has been, what would you do differently? Well, finding a university attached to an academic house and there. <laughs> <laughs> we never really think about that, right? right? Because as an international student, you just want to get the first job and like, you know, settle all your visa issues and then the other things that can, you can fall into. Right. But you know, once you start doing research, you're like, you need patience. Yeah. And when you're yeah. at other people's mercy all the time for patients, you're like, well, oh, you know, I wish it was, it was just attached to a hospital, you know, uh, because my university is a standalone university. So that's a little difficult. But as I said, you know, I develop collaborations. I don't have that as a problem right now. And I, yeah. my personality is so much that I can go and ask for help. I don't mind. I have no ego. Um, I mean, I have my ego, but not you for, have your ego. Yeah. yeah. You, just, you, you use it in a different setting. Yeah. When I can totally suppress it and go and says, ask somebody, please, can I work with you? That's absolutely no problem. But if you're the kind of person who are a bit, bit shy, you know, if you don't have that kind yeah. of personality, just outgoing and ask for collaboration, ask for support, maybe you should find a university which is attached to a hospital or something like that, or attached to some kind of a resource so that you don't have to work so hard on that, you know. Or if you're the kind of person who will feel frustrated very soon, you know, comes a failure, you're like, oh no, I don't want to do this anymore. You may have to find something like that. The other thing also is that, uh, as you said earlier, it depends a lot on your personality. So I don't have a department here of social and social science people. So which means I kind of work by myself, right? So you, if you, are, if you're someone who needs someone to talk to you, who, 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 I mean, everybody needs a mentor. But if you're someone who needs a mentor on a day-to-day basis, right? Something like that, it's not a good place for you because you're on your own. You have to develop collaborations. You have to meet with people. You have to talk to people. So you have to be careful. You know, look at your personality too, and just make that decision as to where you want. Yeah, especially when you go, especially when you go for the um, interviews, just have a feel, not for what they tell you, but what you don't. What does it tell you? Size of the place, see how the dynamic oh, is yeah. before you, you know, sign that paper because it has to be a good fit. The tenure track or assistant professor non-tenure track position can be very tough. I mean, it's really tough. And how much money finding a place that is a good fit for you? It's going to be doubly frustrating to you know, be in that kind That of is so true. I think when you go for the interviews, you have to be really careful to, just to see the dynamics that's going on there, uh, how the yeah. faculty interact with each other, the respect they have for each other, do they have you know, each other's back, all those things are really important because at the end of the day, you are spending a good amount of your waking hours in a good state. You just that's want it. that place to be a happy, nice place so that you know you are taken care of, you are taking care of other people so you feel good about it. So here's, here's a question I'd like to ask you. 
And I'm asking you this because I know you've told me about it. You travel a lot. Mm-hmm. You travel with your kids. Yes. And you seem to enjoy traveling with mm-hmm. your kids. You're probably one of the few people that I that I know that enjoy traveling. <laughs> <laughs> now tell me. Um, how many countries have we visited? Well, I, I, it's not a lot actually. So, so you have to keep in mind that my kids are really small, right? So they are eight and six. So uh, yeah. from the time they were born, from the first year of their life, we go to India every other year. So, so that is a that happens for the you know like without any interruption so far. Every other year we go to India. We spend anywhere from four to six weeks in India. Uh, so that they get time to spend with their family, you know, their uh, um, extended family, their grandparents, their uncles, aunts, and all those things. And they also get to see the culture and, you know, the real Indian food, the real Indian music, everything, the real, real thing, right? Not like here where we, we go to Indian restaurants, but it is not completely 100% Indian. So yeah. every other year we go, go like that. But I think from the time uh, my little one turned, uh, I would say, Three, that is when we started going to Europe. So we went to Berlin. Uh, that was the first place we went as a family uh, to Europe. And then the next year was again back to India. And then the next year we went to Scotland. Uh, then the next year we went back to India. I look at it like this. I want them to get exposed to everything as much as possible, especially people, right? The culture. I don't want them to grow up thinking this is it. And this is not it. <laughs> Especially, especially since you live in Correct. India. It is such a, such a white place. <laughs> it, it ain't heterogeneous, you know what it, I mean? Correct. It's not, it is so different. So I, I, I want them to go and travel and meet different people, see different things and see how different everything is like. Like when we were in Scotland, both in Berlin and Scotland, you know, we didn't have, um, uh, of course, we use a lot of public transit and public transit is so common in these places. When we were in Scotland, um, my little one, she was like, she, I think she walks so much. And she was like, how come they don't have cars in this place, mommy? You know, it, it, it is it, so it, different it, for them. And I want them to experience that. That's, the first, that's a U.S. baby right yeah. now. <laughs> exactly. Like the first time when we were in Berlin, we were in the public transit. And they speak so loud, you know. And I'm like, listen, girls, you're not in a car. You have to be whispering. Mm-hmm. They don't know those things. They think like, oh, you know, you're inside a vehicle and you just talk. I'm like, no, no, no. You cannot use your car voice here. You have to use your tape voice now. <laughs> so they are understanding of those things. And they have good memories. You know, like we we put the videos back and they see things and they're like, oh, over that time we did it. So it's really good memories for them too. And I think it's forcing them to the different cultures and all those things. You know, they, they when they become big enough, they can make a decision. Like they're like, okay, I want to move somewhere. They can move. If they think they want to stay here, they can stay here. If they think they want to go back to India, they can go back to India. And like even going to India every other year, they love it. They love staying there. They think it is the most uh, adventurous thing they're doing. So they have so much fun doing all those things. And we always make it all sound like, oh, this is this is what we do. You know, there is no there is no question about it every year. Are you from Are you from Kerala? Yes, I am from Kerala, the southern state uh, in India. Yeah. You guys are the tea drinking people, right? Not the coffee. Yeah, the tea drinking people. Yes. <laughs> And um, so, do you do you speak Malayalam? Yes, or? I speak Malayalam. That is not. How about you speak um, Telugu or? Telugu? No, I don't. Um, the only sp- language I speak actually is uh, Malayalam. So, um, yes, they, we do. Um, they both can understand Malayalam very well. My older one can speak, uh, uh, nice. but she she chooses not to speak most of the time. Um, uh, so what I'm doing this days is very interesting. So the kids back home in Kerala, they speak both English and Malayalam. So most of them, you know, of course, Malayalam is a language, but most of them know how to speak English. Uh, so I started showing the videos of kids back home and I'm going to say, look at those kids. They all speak two languages. And look at you girls. You only know one language. It is so sad. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, did, they, did they fall for it? Did I they think buy they're it? only falling for it. <laughs> they're like, oh. Uh, yeah. yeah, so, so you know, I, but I also understand, you know, like, it's very easy for them to speak in English, especially when they're coming back from school and they're seeing me. They want to say everything that happened in school. English comes very natural for them. Uh, but during the uh, weekends, during vacation, we are like, okay, now we don't have any school. We can just take our time to speak in Malayalam. And, and they go for it. But they also enjoy the culture a lot. They enjoy Indian food. They enjoy Indian music. They enjoy Indian dances. 
Um, they love wearing Indian costumes. They think it is so cool. The Indian costumes are so colorful and beautiful. Uh, they totally love the Indian culture. They're very, very happy about it. Yeah. Um, thanks for answering that. Another question I have now. If you weren't a professor right now, but if you could do something else, what, what would you want to do? So, you know, there are all these kind of jobs that you watch and you wonder how, how it is like being in that job. So for me, that kind of job is like the things that I had never done. How is it like being a waitress? How is it like being a bus conductor or a train conductor? What does the job is like? How does it feel like? You know, those kind yeah. of things, you know, like I have no idea how it is like any of those things are because, you know, you're, you're always on a track and it, you did it and you became a professor and you're like, there are all these other things. I have no idea what their everyday is like, right? What do they do? So those are the things that I would like to do. And, and to tell the truth, I don't want to continue uh, in the academy for a very, very long time, like until I die kind of a thing. Uh, yeah. I, I wanna, I wanna, you know, work for some more, few more years, you know, like maybe, I don't know, maybe another, um, uh, 10, 15 years max. And then I want to do other things. I don't want to stay at home, but I want to do other kind of jobs. I don't think I'll be healthy enough to being a waitress at that time, but I don't know, other things, you know, just, just for the, fun of it for the sake of it to see what is it like being in other jobs so i'm always curious you know i think it it has got to do with my training of this behavioral science you know you're always watching people you're always observing people and then you're like what is it like being like that you know what is it like being yeah. a a patient advocate what is it like being like a you know any of those jobs you know, i have no idea so those are the things that i would like to do if i was not a professor oh very good um thanks for asking that now, I know one of the things you do is adherence. It's one of your core researches. Um, in a few words, can you tell us a little bit about that? And knowing that not all of my audience are outcomes research so savvy. Right. So medication adherence is uh, just basically it means that you have to take the medicine as prescribed by your physician, but that also means that you come into some kind of an agreement with your physician. Uh, because the physician knows about the disease, he knows about the drugs, but you know about your life. So it is a kind of a collaboration, actually. It's a team effort. So you let the physician know how your life is like, and the physician is going to talk to you about the disease and the drugs, and you come to some kind of an agreement and you say, okay, this is how I want to take my drugs. And then medication adherence just means, are you going to take your drugs as you came to an agreement with? But uh, unfortunately, what happens is that that collaboration usually don't happen. <laughs> the physicians prescribe and they expect you to take the drugs as prescribed and you don't take the drug as prescribed. 50% of the time, people don't take the drug as prescribed. A lot of reasons for that. Uh, so my research mainly revolves around identifying patient psychosocial factors, which means what are the beliefs? What are some of their social factors that we can influence so that they will start taking the medicines? For example, maybe their beliefs in medicines is that, you know, if I'm taking my drugs for cholesterol, I'll become addicted on this thing. Further on, I cannot control my cholesterol without the medicine. So they don't want to start on the medicine. They just want to control the diet. They just want to exercise, right? So, or, or it can be cultural belief. Right? They think that if I start taking insulin, I'm going to have a my leg amputated sooner than if I am just on the pills. And they don't want to take their insulin on. Uh, or it can be a fear factor. It can be a thought that somebody will think I'm a druggie and I don't want to take it. It can be a lot of those kind of reasons. Or it can be that you don't understand your disease. You don't know why you want all these things and you don't want to take the drug. So there are a lot of reasons why people don't take the drug because of their beliefs about the medicines or the beliefs about their illnesses. So my research focuses a lot on how we can intervene or how we can change these people's beliefs so that they can start taking medicines. It can also be other things like a social factors such as it can be health literacy, right? They don't understand it. Then how can we improve their health literacy so that they will start taking medicines? So those are the things that I mainly work on. You know, how to change their, um, how to change their thought process, how to work through their thought process so that they understand taking this medicine is the best decision I should be doing and I should, I should just take the medicine. So that's what I work on. All right. Good. Thank you for that. Um, we're kind of running off now and I would like to ask you just you know, a couple of questions. You're from India, you moved to the U.S., and now, now you, live, you live in Utah. And you grew up in Kerala, I want to imagine, but you went to school in Manipal. Um, if you could pick a part of India that you could sell to people, like people that are listening, why they should visit that place, why in India? And the same thing about Utah, like what's beautiful about Utah and how can you, how, like what would you say to people that want to that explore but they don't know <laughs> Well, India is so diverse, right? Like every state is so different. 
So I would kind of say it again depends on your kind of interest. So if you are the kind of person who wants to just enjoy the the beaches and just want to take a relaxed vacation, a place like Goa is really good. Goa is very beautiful. The beaches, the beaches right? are there. It was a Portuguese yeah. uh, colony before, so you have you see a lot of yeah. you know colonial structures. Uh, so you can still get you some of your Western things in there, and you know you can just enjoy and relax your life, and you can eat really good food and come home. But if you're looking for something to get to feel the the India, India, then you may have to go to a big metro like Bombay or Delhi, where you get to see another part of India, right? If you go to one of these metros like Bombay or Delhi, uh, all kinds of people are living there. There are poor, the rich, people from different states. Everything is there. It's crowded. It's dirty. Um, it's humid. That is another way of experiencing India. Now, if you want to take it somewhere in between, like you don't want Goa, but you don't want Bombay, it, you know, you can go to places like Bangalore, or you can go to Bangalore is also becoming natural these days, or a place like yeah. uh, Kerala, where it is somewhere in between, you know. And if you also want to make sure that you're going to a place where which is more safer, which where people will speak English, you know, you can look at all those things to us to decide where you want to go and spend your time in India because it is so diverse. Again, the food habits that you have, every food in every state is different. So if you come to a place like Kerala, we eat a lot of coconut-based dishes. So if you're someone who don't like coconut, no, yeah. that may not be a good place. We eat a lot of fish. Uh, you eat a lot of plantains too. We eat a lot of plantains, right? So all those things yeah. are there. But if you are a person who enjoys spicy food, the real, real, real spicy food, then um, yeah. uh Andhra Pradesh is good. Hyderabad is good. You know, they eat very spicy food. They eat a lot of biryanis, which is like this uh, flavored rice. Uh, they eat all these kind of things. So that is a good place to go. So it also depends on what kind of food you enjoy and things like that and what what kind of a vacation you basically want. I have seen people doing both. Uh, I have seen people going to India and uh, the only thing they wanted to do was riding bike. Um, you know, the motorbikes. So they go to those kind of, you know, laid back places. Um, uh, but I have also seen people going to India to experience India, living in Delhi for, you know, a couple of weeks and coming back saying, Oh my gosh, I understood India so much better now compared to when I was here, you know. So it depends on what you want to experience in India too. It's so different. It is so different. All right. How about you tell me? I just think of it as Mormon County with a lot of national parks. You have more national parks in Utah than anywhere else in the U.S., which I think is very fantastic. I haven't been there before, and I do know that you have a lot of, um, there's a huge Roman community yes. there. And not, 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 not like they're both related, but you also have a, a, a looming drug epidemic in, in Utah. Yeah. Not drug abuse and, you know, opioids, yeah, right. opioid abuse. So it's it's an interesting place by itself. As you said, it's very beautiful. So the the moment you're you you come to Utah, if you're flying in, you see all the mountains right next to you. You're just living in the valley, right? So mountains are right. It's 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 surrounding you. It's it's kind of a uh, if you're not experienced to that. For me, I came here from Plain Lines, right? From Iowa, from Louisiana, coming to here. I first felt claustrophobic. I felt like the mountains was just in front of my face. But once you get used to it, it is so beautiful because right now if you look outside, all this green, the mountains are so beautiful. It's green and it's so pretty. Come fall, you can see them all changing colors. It's all this beautiful orangish red color and then the whole beautiful snow. It's very beautiful. And we have got all the national parks here. And, you know, unless you actually see some of these national parks, you actually cannot believe that those things really exist. You know, the rock formations over millions and millions of years. It is so beautiful. So it is really, you know, you drive Four hours you are in a national park. So what is it is really true. Yeah. It is full of national parks. Now the population here. So uh, when I first moved here in 2009, even now this I won't say it is like dramatic or anything, but there's a lot of people who are non-Mormons moving into Utah now. Um, a lot of industries are moving into Utah from California, right? California is so expensive. It's all big taxes. So they're moving to Utah. And so a lot of people are moving along with it, uh, which is a lot of um, Indians are moving because these tech companies are moving, you know, techs are usually Indians. <laughs> so Indians now that's how you use cultural appropriation. Right. So, there, so there's a lot of other people moving in, and the valley is becoming wider and wider. Not, I would say wider, longer and longer. I would say, 
Um, so it's it's happening. And the other thing is that I would say the Mormon population are very. So they say that maybe 20 years back they would have been much more reserved and things like that. But now there is not much of a. You know they are much more friendly and they accept you. It's easy to live. And I to some extent I think if you're living if you're trying to raise a family it's a pretty good place to raise a family because you know they have a lot of this family values which is very easy so you don't have to worry about a lot of other things you know like that just get along with you you just have to be careful you know like how you are understanding them or you're dealing with them and stuff like that as long as you know them they know you it's it's not that bad and you know there's a lot of diversity happening now but i'm not saying it's anything like new york or texas or anything but you can see uh more and more of uh other nationalities, especially Indians, a lot actually, and Hispanics a lot. Um, so that's one thing here. Uh, the drug opioid epidemic that is really sad actually. Um, it's uh, it's uh, it's actually being the, so the studies show that it's more among the Mormons, uh, working people, uh, women, you know, like somebody that you don't usually expect to get into that kind of habits. That's where they are they are getting into. So, um, so they are doing more studies to find out why it is them, what can we do to get them out of it. But they are such a close knit community; it's hard to filter into them, you know, to do things with them. Uh, but there are a couple of theories out there why it is happening. Uh, one of the reasons is that they are not allowed to use. A a lot of, uh, you know, they cannot drink coffee, they cannot drink soda, you know, so maybe. Yeah. But I heard that some of the schools now they actually start allowing soda. Yes, the BYU finally allowed sodas, and I was telling them you should, girls should have just allow coffee instead of soda. <laughs> I know, maybe we'll be happier with coffee instead of turning to opioids, you know what I mean? <laughs> Imagine a life, imagine life without coffee. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and you see them getting into those kind of, you know, kind of this uh, uh, bad habits. And one of them, I think, is opioids. Um, so, and I think there's a lot of pressure also among them to uh, to be at their best always, uh, which is hard, especially on women. You know, like uh, uh, you have to be looking perfect always. You have to be at the and, and it's just so hard. You know, you have your two kid, three kid, four kid, five, six, and you still have to look like that. Boy, it is hard. So <laughs> I think the pressure mounts on them, which make them do things that they shouldn't be doing. There's sometimes a feeling like that too. Uh, but at least the the valleys are aware of that. We have huge billboards now, which says a lot of things about the opioid uh, epidemic. It says things like, "Don't add um, um, insult to injury by taking opioids when you have an injury." You know that is how many of them get into it. They start on something, and then you know before they know they're addicted to it. So there's a lot of billboards up there which encourages them uh, not to take opioids to start with um uh, there's a lot of ads out there so hopefully it's all working uh, but yes it is still a problem all right and then um final question if you could look back now what what would advice would you give a younger version of yourself as far as you know um assistant professor associate professor woman in academia and all that is concerned well what would that be <laughs> i would say a lot of it's it's um you know trust your instincts your instincts are always right you know, trust your instincts because that always gets you to the right place. Um, uh, so when I decided to come here, right, you know, uh, there were a lot of things that told me you should not at this point of time in your life moving to the United States is not a good idea. Uh, but I trusted my instincts and I moved and I think it just, it, it really worked for me. Um, or, or taking up this position at the Rosemary University, you know, like, uh, um, you know, uh, th th that was a huge decision, you know, especially coming out of a place like Iowa. Usually people go into a tenant track position and I decided to go into a teaching place and, uh, you know, but I trusted my instincts that keep me happy, keep my family happy. So I think that's what I would say, you know, trust your instincts because your instincts are most of the time, it's pretty right. But first, have some coffee, okay? If you're in New York. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, that was the show. Thank you so much. And I think for me, two things that I... You've said a lot of wonderful things. You've shared your wisdom with us today. Two things that I... It's going to stay with me is, you know, when you're trying to approach people that you want to collaborate with and you just don't know how, make sure you work actually do some work. So take some of your own past research. Let them, let them see your track record. They can get this done. And they also know your audience. You can't be throwing around medical jargons and statistical jargon. Make sure you tailor the information in such a way that they might, they'll be excited and they can relate with it. So, so to me, those two tips are things I think, you know, we should remember as far as trying to attract collaborators to our own research. So thank you so much for sharing your story with us, Dr. Oni, and 
you know, um, I'm really, really honored that you came in today. And I should say that when you replied me, after I put out that email about someone staying with me, because I said a bit about, I, I speak Korean, if anyone is interested in being a roommate with me, Bob, I know you reply. Your last name, by the way, did I tell you that it's, it's, it's Korean word for big sister? Oni. Really? Did I tell you that? Oh, yes. wow. Yes, <laughs> yes, Oni. So a girl, to, a younger girl to an older girl, an older female, we call that, we call that female, older female, Oni. So when you reply, I was like, her last name is Oni? Like Elizabeth Oni? I was like, is she Korean, by the way? And of course, <laughs> when we finally met, I knew you were in Korean, so I was like, oh, okay, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I just wanted to mention that. I don't I don't think I told you that. Well, that's yeah. very interesting actually, yeah. Yeah. But anyways, um thanks for sharing your um wisdom with us and I and I do wish you the very best with your research as well and small collaboration, bigger grant funding mechanisms and all of the wonderful things. And of course, you know, you spending time with your family. I think at the end of the day that's what really matters. Like spending time with people that matters the most. We can win all of your words and make you know strides in our career but if you have kids and you have a family you want to spend as much time as you can with them and i think you you found that path of having that balance because we talk about that work-life balance which you know it's never a balance but you found a way to like i think integration is what you've done work-life integration not work-life balance because there's never a balance <laughs> so anyone listening it's work-life balance is a scam it's not real it's like santa sorry that's santa claus but you know it's not real so it's work-life integration and Dr. Oni is an example of how you can integrate, you know, what you want in life and also your passion for research and work and how you can make those two merge in such a way that one doesn't seem like take, it's taking away from the other. So thanks for that. And um, that's it. I don't know if you have any final thoughts before I round, round off this. No. Uh, thank you so much for doing it. It's, it was a real pleasure. You know, it was fun talking to you and, uh, you know, sharing some of the thoughts that I had. Thank you. And I don't know if you want to end with speaking now. To your kids, let him, let's hear you say that a little bit. Um, I'd say something in Malayalam. Yeah, maybe to your daughter so you can hear something. Like um, Ida Amma Amma de Jolie could super Malayana. Oh, I had Amma, so that's yes. your mom. <laughs> this is your mom? Yeah. This is your mom. Yeah, I thought that this is mom talking about mom's work. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Could you be less obvious? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think it's that is something I do. It's, it sounded like Hindi, though. It sounded like Hindi for a while. It's actually very different. But, you know, that's something I do with them a lot also. Uh, every time I publish something, I bring my paper and show them. And so they kind of understand what, what I'm doing at office, where I'm spending my time. Oh, wow. So they, they say that, oh, it's like you're writing a story. And I'm like, yeah, it's like me writing a story. It just wow. has to do a lot of work before the story comes together. And so they kind of understand it, you know, and they feel proud of it too, that they, you know, that they, they get the tangent result of me being away from the, what am I doing in my office? They get to see it and they feel very happy about it and they feel so proud about me, you know. So I think that is, that's a really cool thing. Yeah, maybe I'll give you one found that like using your kids as your audience, you can even use them for your presentation. <laughs> like present in front of them and see if they understand it. Because you know how they always say if you if you cannot explain to your grandmother what you're doing, then you don't know what you're doing. Like, That's right? so good. You're like you're like years ahead of us. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> thank you so much, Dr. Onis. So that was the show everyone. Um thanks for tuning in or thanks for downloading however you've been listening to it. This has been the Marcible Podcast. Um don't forget to check the website www.mosibyl.com and um, email me at talktomo t-a-l-k-t-o-m-o at mosibyl.com I'd like to hear your thoughts on that if you have any suggestions for guests on the show I'm talking about culture, cultural stuff from any topical angle I'm more than open to have guests on the show so send me your recommendations as well and if you had any nice thoughts or not nice thoughts about the show just email me as well Anyways, um, thank you all and um, catch you guys on another episode. I remain your host, Mr. Alright. You too. Bye-bye. I'll see you around.